Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen classes and trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen class library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Seamus Mullen is a New York-based chef, cyclist, cookbook author, restaurateur, and advocate for wellness. He's also got an amazing book out called Real Food Heals, which everyone needs to pick up. And he's my neighbor here in Dumbo, Brooklyn. Seamus is one of my favorite people in the world, and it's such an honor to have him here today. Seamus, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Longtime friend, neighbor, in the hood here in Dumbo. In the hood. So, but but you didn't start in the hood. You started in Vermont. Yeah. No, I'm not exactly a New York local. I've been here a while. I don't know if, did I ever tell you about my first experience in Dumbo? No, let's... Let's break we, news right now. Okay, Let's, so I looked at an apartment here in 2001, um, which I'm sure you remember the neighborhood was nothing like what it is now. Oh, yeah. And it was in, um, I can't remember the address of the building, but you'll know the building. It's right down, the weirdest thing is I've lived here for years and I don't know any of the names of the streets. <laughs> it's like a block from here. Anyway, it's right next to the Manhattan Bridge, and it was a factory. Job Street. You know the building that... Um, that uh, IMAX shift is in? Yeah, John Street. John Street. Okay, yeah. so that building. The old, all the artist um, lofts are yes. in there. Yeah, the artist lofts. So there, there were factories in there, and there's a bunch of other stuff in there. And I l- responded to a Craigslist ad for uh, an artist loft, quote-unquote, um, in that building. I went. I walked through the whole factory building to get up to the seventh floor, this place in the corner, and there's a French guy that had a little loftish type building. It was cool, cool little apartment, but it was really, you know, weird building at the time. Oh, it still is. I've yeah. Been there. It's, it's cool. pretty bizarre. It's cool. And, um, the guy's like trying to say, he was moving back to Paris. He's trying to sell me on subletting this illegal loft from him. So I thought that's pretty cool. You know, it's like $1,100 a month, amazing space, 1500 square feet, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly the train went by and it was like, it was going out my ass and out my mouth at the same time. It was like through my head. Literally, I was like I was being driven. That scene in Seven, remember that scene oh, yeah. when... when, when uh, I was thinking the Blues Brothers. Or, yeah, live. exactly. Yeah, same sort of thing. But that, I remember a scene with Gwyneth Paltrow and and, um, and Brad uh, Pitt are, are um, in their apartment. They just moved to New York and it's literally the train shakes the apartment every time it goes by. It was so loud. I couldn't believe it. So that was my first experience in Dumbo looking for an apartment. And it took me a while to actually move back to the neighborhood. <laughs> but no, I didn't start here. Yeah, so talk to me about, so growing up in Vermont, what was that like? And is that when your love affair with food began? Yeah, I mean, I think I and most kids like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe not all of them, but I certainly like to eat. I, I grew up in Vermont. Um, my parents were kind of 
escaping the craziness of um, the Vietnam War in the 70s and started a subsistence farm when I was an infant. Um, so I was always around food. My grandmother moved in with us when I was uh, maybe like two or three years old. And she built her own house on the same property, but had a much more modern house than what my brother and I grew up in. Um, and she was a great cook, and she loved cooking. Uh, and we kind of grew up in a household in which everybody had to cook. Everybody had jobs, chores, responsibilities. And cooking was just another one of them, and it was a skill that we kind of just expected to learn. There was no sense that now you're going to learn how to cook. It was just something everyone did and everyone participated. So I think my my early cooking experiences were probably shelling peas and freezing um, spinach and things like that, and then eventually and helping out, you know, in the in the in the, the general chores of of the of the household. And then I started actually cooking and really enjoying cooking. So it definitely was the where my love affair with food started. Did you have like a favorite dish early on, like when you were a teenager, like you perfected something? Yeah, uh, yeah. Some of them were kind of embarrassing, but they, we, um, my brother and I were were masters of making what we called the pizzette, which was you know some form of English muffin pizza in a in a, uh, in, a in a um toaster oven we made a delicacy like, you yeah, enjoy it around midnight or yeah, 2 a.m yeah. well a- <laughs> yeah i think as an adult probably that's when it, <laughs> those things go down but as a kid they were like we made our those are the sorts of uh, we'd get home from school and there'd be nobody home and we'd have to make ourselves food when we were you know nine years old eight years old so that was kind of a go-to pizza english muffin pioneer <clears throat> yeah uh what else i mean my, my grandmother was English, but she had gone. She went to the to the Cordon Bleu in the 1930s. Oh wow! In Paris, yeah, she lived with the Sabatier family, and she actually had a a pretty good foundation in cooking. So she made she made a lot of classic French dishes, but she also made a lot of traditional English food. So toad in the hole was a staple when I was growing up, and Yorkshire pudding, things like that. So you're growing, you're cooking, are you thinking, okay, like maybe this is a career or I just like doing this, <laughs> no. I just like the eating, no I, I know. I didn't even know, really know what a restaurant was. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I didn't ever think of it as a, I mean, I didn't think of it as a career until I was, until I finished college. Um, and I'm still wondering if I actually think of it as a career, <laughs> more of a curse than a career. Um so I know I, I was in high school. I, I, I liked cooking and we always had to have summer jobs and my summer jobs kind of gravitated towards um, working in restaurants. Again, to continue the the uh, toaster oven pizza theme, I worked in a lot of pizzerias. Um, I worked in a couple of different pizzerias. What's a pizzeria like in, in, in Vermont? Well, I worked in, than... yeah, I worked in one in, um, in Hanover, New Hampshire called Everything But Anchovies. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. famous, EBAs. Yeah. So it's like a famous Dartmouth like, haunt. Exactly, yeah. I can tell you some crazy stories about EBAs. They just closed, actually, this year. Oh, really? Yeah, after 30-some-odd years. Oh, wow. Um, and I worked in a place called The Village Pizza, I think. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, so I, I was there a, a place, <laughs> there was a place near Northfield, Mount Hermon, where we both went to yeah. school. Like, what was the name? The like, one, the Greek place that was in Northfield. Yeah. Yeah. That was called, I can't remember what the hell it was called. I that was, you know, they got raided for, um, for money laundering. Are you serious? Yeah. The guy that the original owner I think <laughs> was, was like involved in, in like Coke trafficking or something. Oh my God. Yeah. But that just, place was around. I yeah. just remember when I when I went there and being from New York and I was like, Oh my god, like pizza in other places is just not as good. It's not as good. <laughs> this <yeah>. is terrible. <laughs> yeah, and for me it was pizza in any form is delicious, so it's great. Um 
but yeah, no, I, I, so I cooked in, in, in high school and during the summer and then, uh, in college, um, my way, I paid my way through college working in kitchens and that's where I actually started to get exposed to real cooking. Um, first in, in Michigan and then in Spain. Uh, well, that's then, a big leap. How did you go from Michigan to Spain? Well, by airplane. <laughs> How else would you go? Uh, or multiple airplanes. I, I started, I was going to school in Michigan, and then I um, went abroad in Spain, and that's where I started working at a tapas bar in Spain. But in, in Michigan, I worked in a little place called the International Cafe, um, which was kind of like a Middle Eastern-y sort of place, lots of hummus and baba ganoush and, you know, roast chicken and things like that. But the chef was this amazing French woman named Kiki Babalouk. And she was <laughs> she was wonderful. She was incredible. Um, and Kiki, uh, I actually wrote about her in my, in my first book, but she was really the first person to ever teach me proper cooking skills. Um, and she was a lovely, lovely person who traveled all around, around the world and was tough as nails. And um, somehow she ended up in, in Michigan in this in this little restaurant. And so she, I learned a lot from her. Um, and then when I got out of school, I had a degree in Spanish literature, which, you know, is a perfect qualification to work in a restaurant. Um, <laughs> and that's about the only thing it really prepares you for. And I started working in restaurants and... and uh, and the rest is history. But I, you know, at the time, even early on when I was working in restaurants, I never thought this is a career path. I could become a chef and eventually, you know, write cookbooks and things like that. Because um, all, all the examples I had of, of, of chefs that I worked for, for the most part, were were, um, were drunks. Right. You think you of know. like Anthony Bourdain, no reservations, like yeah. the, the craziness it, that goes on back there. Yeah. And I think that it, fortunately over the past, you know, 20 years, things have changed quite a bit um it still exists in our industry to a degree but it was like for a really long time it was a very hard-working hard-partying industry and um you know I, i've talked about this a lot but in, in our industry we're notoriously good at taking care of other people but not taking care of ourselves sure so there's a lot of abuse uh, in many ways so i i was young and i was physically active i was a cyclist i was really into racing bikes the thought of going into an industry that was kind of a one-way ticket to to abuse was not something that I was really um, keen on. But I I was able to eventually kind of come out of that and see that, and it was my grandmother who was just an amazing, amazing woman, amazing human being. Um, She, you know, she said to me, she said, you should cook because that's what makes you happiest. You should really do that. And it's true. I mean, I really do. I I derive a lot of fulfillment and, and satisfaction from providing food for other people. And providing not just the, the the nourishment of food, but just the experience too, the social experience of cooking for people. I really, really do enjoy that. And so what in this process, you're in Spain, you're 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 working in a restaurant, you're having fun. When do you mm-hmm. say like, okay, like I can really do this post college? Like I'm, I'm going to yeah. go all in here. Was it, it a series of moments? Or yeah, I mean, well, there was a there was a specific moment when my my grandmother took me um, wine tasting in Sonoma. Uh, and we got completely hammered because I used to, I mean, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother growing up. And then even as a young adult, she lived with me in Spain for six months. Oh, wow. She, my brother and I lived with her in Costa Rica for a long time. We did like, we traveled a ton together. She was a very adventurous, amazing person. Um, so we went wine tasting and we, we got kind of blotto. And in that, that's when she said, you should cook. And then that, that was this moment of like, okay, I guess I should cook. Why not? What, you know, I could, I could do this. And at the time, this is the late nineties and there were, sure. there were 
more examples of it's like early thomas keller yeah that, I, yeah exactly it was before the french laundry cookbook had come out by a few years but you know the 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 french laundry was was the place um and the food network was just starting and there was this kind of burgeoning interest in real food in in the u.s obviously chez panisse had been around for 20 years and it sure. was but but there was and california cuisine was was big and everything but there was suddenly there were more than just a couple examples outliers of of uh of really good restaurants in the u.s but rather there's a movement towards what kind of created the the groundswell that that later gave rise to the to the the farm-to-table movement and and um, uh, the whole generalized seasonality and 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 real I mean what we know today and we take for granted this idea of seasonal seasonal food and local ingredients and and delicious food there the U.S. was a was kind of a wasteland for a really long time so this was at the beginning of that when we were starting to see um, that there was a real you know there's there a real future in food and so you're like okay I'm going to do this then what do you do next yeah. where do you go so I um, I came to New York, and then I went to Spain, and spent a couple of years in Spain, and um, and then came back from there, and came back to New York, and kind of been here pretty much ever since. Um, so the I, I mean, once I decided that I was I uh, that I was going to focus on this as a career, I, I gave myself some benchmarks and said, okay, by this age I want to be at this place in my career. I want to be a sous chef, and by this age I want to be a chef de cuisine, and by this age I want to be an executive. Do chef. you remember the benchmarks? The ages, yeah. yeah I guess. Or how I how are like, you tracking today? Mm, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, ask me. I'm I'm in my 40s now. Let's just put it that You're way. Tracking well. I'm tracking. Uh, so I, I wanted to be a sous chef by I think age 29, and I think I was a sous chef when I was 30, um, more or less. And and then I opened my first restaurant when I was 32, I think. Yeah, 32. Um, so a while ago, but that was, I mean, that was good. I mean, I was at 32 to open a restaurant. It's huge. Were, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was, I, I was pretty motivated to do it. Irony, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, is that as my career was kind of going in the right direction, my health was going in the opposite, complete opposite direction. Sure. Yeah. So, so talk to me about that, like what's going on. So career's taking off, <clears throat> open first restaurant, and let's yep. talk about the decline of your health and how the two were interrelated. Yeah, I mean, listen. There's, I, you know, this, and I've le- come to n- learn this that um, the intersectionality of every aspect of your life is undeniable, and uh, you can't have one thing. Um, you can't sacrifice one aspect of your life for the success of another aspect of your life without some sort of consequences. And when it came to um, my health, I really there were some things that were going on early on that I wasn't even aware of that now in hindsight, looking back, I've, I can put all the pieces together and, and, you know, I'm lucky enough to have, to have, um, gained in this, in this process, a teacher who helped me put those pieces back together and understand my health. But, um, I, when you're young and dumb and you're just doing, you know, hammering over and over and over again, you can kind of get past, um, you can get by on fumes. Mm-hmm. You can run your car on, you know, 58 octane leaded fuel. For or run your motorcycle in your yeah. case. Or run your motorcycle in my case, exactly. But eventually it's, it's going to catch up to you. And um, so I, I was not feeling great, but I was just kind of pushing through it. And when I say not feeling great, the, like on a day-to-day basis, I just started to feel throughout my 20s pretty worn out achy tired all the time but i was still up until three in the morning partying i was still working you know between 
80 and 100 hours a week. Um, I was not eating well, and I was not exercising at all. In addition to the, just the general malaise, I started developing all these weird medical issues, um, starting with, I think the first one that really threw me off was a, a lump in the back of my neck that grew. Initially, it just felt like a lump in the back of my neck, and then it grew and it got a little bit bigger, and then it got bigger, and then it got bigger, and it got to the point where I couldn't ignore this anymore. Like, I had a golf ball in the back of my neck. Wow. And it was sore. So I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a doctor. Um, fortunately, I did have insurance. Um, so I got a, I went to a primary care physician, or to, to a GP, rather, and they ran some blood tests and saw that my liver enzymes are really elevated and my white blood cell count was really high. So I had two kind of classic inflammatory markers. And I had this thing in the back of my neck that was growing and getting bigger. Um, so that was a red flag. And the doctor sent me to see an oncologist um, who, uh, I think I've told you this story, but had pretty much the worst bedside manner of any doctor I've ever experienced in my life. Um, so... You know, I, I've got some tattoos. Yes. Um, and I go to see this doctor, and he asked me, so have you been anywhere uh, outside of the country? I'm like, well, yeah, I've spent some time in, you know, I did a motorcycle trip through Mexico and Central America. I spent some time in South America. Blah, blah. Okay, interesting. And those tattoos, where'd you get those tattoos from? Did you get those in South America? And I said, uh, no, I didn't. And he's like, I can tell he's judging me. He's like very judgment, <laughs> judgmental. And then this next question like totally floors me. He goes, when was the last time you had unprotected sex with a man? <laughs> and I said, well, I've never had unprotected sex with a man. And I said, can you tell me where you're going with this? And he said, well, you know, when I see, uh, when I see blood like this and I see um, this kind of uh, lymphatic inflammation or tumor, um, I often, this is often cases, you know, obviously I haven't run any tests, but often, often this is an early indicator of uh, HIV. Jesus. And just like that, this asshole literally just handed me this, without, you know, this, this, this unfounded diagnosis, which when you're... In your late 20s and you're like, it doesn't matter what age no, you're at if a just, doctor just says like well i think you got hiv yeah let's not even we haven't even run any tests or anything right like so obviously i didn't i didn't ever see him again so i go to see another doctor and there another so what, what just what goes through your mind at that in moment? my mind you know in, in hindsight like i really wish that i had filed a complaint or that i mean this and i think in many ways this is this is uh, there are wonderful doctors out there and there's there are really wonderful people who go into the medical profession but there are also a lot of people that are that are in this industry that are overtaxed um, that are pushed to see way too many people and that also become very very arrogant and develop incredible egos in this kind of godlike role where you are all knowing as the doctor and we keep the patient in the dark and I know and the patient doesn't know and that you know that really pisses me off because there's so many people that, A, are handed out diagnoses that are completely unfounded, and then subsequent treatments for these diagnoses. And then there are also lots of people that, that don't receive the attention and care that, that could actually help them get out of a very, very changeable situation. Um, and this was like this classic case of this guy sussed me up, made a judgment about me immediately, and, uh, and then kind of offhandedly gave me this, you know, this this judgment of who I was, this, this, this write-up of who I was that I you know, was completely devastated. Um, 
and I, and I got, and I hadn't at the time, but I got an HIV test and I was negative and that just added more confusion to what the hell was sure. going on with me. How much time elapsed though? That must've been uh, I don't remember. I think it was like a week, but I remember Jesus. just being like, so like, it was like a week of, of just, oh my God, like what, what if I am like, what if, sure. you know, what, what if that is what's going on and, 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 um, and realizing just how fragile life is, sure. um, but so and then I went to see another another uh, oncologist, and um, they decided to take the the tumor out of my neck, and to biopsy it, which they did, and it came back benign. And that just kind of was like, all right, well, obviously something is out of whack. I don't know what it is, and just as I was kind of trying to, I wouldn't say dig into this because I was still in that I'm in I'm in my early twenties or my mid twenties, and I'm um, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm you know I'm unbreakable I can survive anything I wasn't really I should have taken this on and said well I need to find out what's wrong with me but instead I was like well I'm going to kind of deal with this but not really deal with it and then boom I was riding home from work um, on my motorcycle over the Brooklyn Bridge and I got nailed from behind by by a, a van a panel van and that changed my whole world and my whole landscape um, and I broke tons of bones um, and ended up spending a long time in the hospital and then a long time in a wheelchair and then on crutches and uh, had multiple surgeries. And that whole... Well, didn't you also have a PE, too? That came later. It wasn't that. Oh, no, that, yeah, that, that wasn't part of that. No. You've had like nine lives. Okay. I've had, yeah. And that was... I mean, the thing is, is that I've had all many, many near-death experiences. Um, I shouldn't say many, many. I've had several near-death experiences and severe medical um, uh, issues. But they're all kind of compounded and they're all related. Sure. So you know, one uh, one bad thing begets another bad thing and opens up a, a, the opportunity and exposure to many other bad things. Um, so this is kind of you know the motorcycle accident was unrelated to not feeling well, but what it did is it put the investigation into what was making me not feel well on the back burner because suddenly my whole landscape of of pain was just through the roof. Um, and for the next couple of years, I was just dealing with overcoming this accident and trying to get keep above float and keep my career moving forward, hobbling in the kitchen, limping, cane, et cetera. Painkillers. Painkillers, yeah. everything. Um, and when I finally, after a few years, maybe three or four years later, as I'd kind of had gotten back from, I'd recovered what I thought was as much as I was going to recover from the motorcycle accident, um, that's just when all of the other stuff, like the underlying issues of my illness that I didn't know I had at the time, really started to bubble up. And that's where I just was just um, in day-to-day -day, constant achy, chronic pain all the time with punctuated by really acute um, attacks in different parts of my body. So it started with attacks in my shoulder that were just inexplainable um, uh, pain in my shoulder and swelling in my shoulder. I'd go to the ER and have no, you know, they would ask me what trauma I'd had and there was no, there was no like clear um, trauma. Uh, so I had, no, I had no answer for them and then it, would, it was in my knee and then my hip. And eventually I was um, committed, or not committed, I was, I was <laughs> committed, eventually I was that's, committed. That's, I thought that yeah. we were getting that later. <laughs> no, yeah, that comes later. Guys, yeah. you can come in now. No. Yeah. <laughs> Get that straight jacket off of me. No, I admitted into the hospital. Um, 
and I was stood there for a few weeks and, and that's when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So suddenly I had like a, a diagnosis to hang my hat on that made sense of this state of chronic pain I was in and, and, um, and, and also explained my bloods from years earlier, why my bloods were so out of whack, why I had these biomarkers that showed um, severe inflammation. And it's, to me, it kind of made sense of my whole situation. Um, and I, it kind of began, too, because if you think about it, like I'd had this motorcycle accident, which I thought of as being not my fault at all. Um, you know, somebody else hit me from behind. Uh, and, and in hindsight, yeah, it wasn't really my fault, but I certainly was participating in risky behavior. Like I was driving sure. a motorcycle at night, late at night, um, riding home on a bike that was probably not that well lit. So it wasn't that easy for, to be, to be seen on it. Um, I wasn't really wearing any reflective gear. So to a degree, I, I could extrapolate that and say, I was partially responsible for that. Um, then I had this illness and I, as far as I could tell, you know, I was very undeserving of this illness. It just, why me? I have this sickness. And then that began this, the next few years for me where I really perceived myself as a victim. And being a victim um, kind of kept me in a place of being ill for many reasons. Mm. And also, I don't want to say I enjoyed it, but I think that to a degree it gave me an excuse it allowed me to live in this. If if you have, um, if you if you perceive yourself as a as as a victim, then it gives you an excuse not to actually do anything about your situation. Right. Because you're just a victim. You're you're you know you're totally innocent in this. Um, and, and for the most part, you know I was. But what I didn't realize, and and after going through an incredible journey over the next you know the past really five six years for me, um, is that that I actually, um, once I stopped thinking of myself as a victim and stopped thinking of myself as a sick person, that was the, the those were the last moments of being a sick person sure. and the last moments of being a victim when I realized that I can actually, and it took a lot of help to get there, but I realized that there was a lot I could actually do to change my narrative. Um, and in doing that, uh, there was a great sense of empowerment and, and also, you know, relief. But things got worse for you too at this point. Yeah, no, they like, got a lot like, worse. I remember before. you yeah. almost getting surgery, pulmonary embolism. Mm -hmm. Like, walk yeah. us to, just tell people what you went okay, through because so it's hell. Okay, so you want to hear the so okay, so I had the well, like a lot of people. I think it's important for people to hear. <clears throat> a lot of people are struggling with health issues, yeah. but like people don't realize like we're just getting started. Like I remember, and I yeah. know the whole story. You know the whole story. So yeah. So I mean, basically, what happened is it's I, like you've got a diagnosis, and for I've some people, it's like okay, great, great, we figured it out. But yes. like, no, 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 no. And 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 in that diagnosis, um, you know, I was very scared because I I did exactly what you shouldn't do. I checked Doctor Google immediately, immediately, and <laughs> and Doctor Google told me I was never going to work again. I was never going to ride a bicycle, and I was never going to do any of these things. I wasn't going to be physically active, um, and. You know, the, the doctors that I did talk to told me, listen, there are a lot of really good drugs for treating this, and we're going we're gonna to help you manage the disease. You're going to be able to manage it, um, which is a, you know, it was never, we're going to cure this, or it's curable. It was rather, we're going to manage this. This is manageable. Um, and that began sort of a conventional path that so many people I know have gone down, which is disease management or it's symptomatic management. And that is really what um, most of Western conventional medicine does with chronic illness because it's, it's 
what it's suited to do. And, and unfortunately, a lot of that is driven by um, by the pharmaceutical industry, sure. which has you know money to make and drugs to sell. Um, and a lot of it also comes from the fact that it's we, we live in a in a medical world that really um, is focused on causality. So it's sort of I call it transactional health, one to one. Isolate the cause, find the solution. Sure. Um, and health is really complicated. There's so many moving parts and so many different aspects and aspects, um, you know, aspects to health that we don't understand. Um, that it isn't any one thing. And I, I think a lot of people often ask me, so what do you think caused RA? And that was definitely my question early on. What caused this? And once I've kind of learned this now in recent years, that that if you're stuck on trying to focus on what caused something like, for instance, RA, you're never really going to improve the situation. You have to understand that there are there are myriad factors that that create an environment in which disease takes hold mm-hmm. or the create an environment in which health flourishes. And you have to really be very cognizant of all of those factors. And that goes into your day-to-day decision-making and all of those may decisions you make, those small decisions, the, the minutia, we talk about death by a thousand cuts. It's like health by a thousand choices. Sure. All of those those choices we make add up to creating a picture of, of ill health or of 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 strong health, of good health. Um, so I, I was really focused on that notion of causality. What caused this? Okay, this is the cause. We can identify it, and therefore we can fix it or we can change it. Most of you know the treatment at the time was very much about suppressing. Um, uh, the, the the symptoms, which actually, in the case of RA, which is an autoimmune disease, suppressing the quote-unquote overactive immune system. And in doing that, then we can slow the degenerative process of the disease. The problem is, is that the drugs that are used for immunosuppression leave you exposed to a lot of other things. Um, so I, I went through, I mean, I had a whole variety of issues happen to me. And they started, um, you know, my, I, I had um, uh, spinal surgery. Um, and th- four days after the spinal surgery, being a complete moron, I went back into the kitchen and tried to cook in the kitchen, like just to be in the kitchen. And I remember halfway through dinner service, I mean, I was like, I couldn't even move. I'd literally just, I had just had spinal surgery. Um, getting having trouble breathing, so I went home, uh, and by I couldn't sleep, and I really could barely breathe. And by like six in the morning, my breath was extremely shallow. And I called my doctor, and he said, "Go to the ER right now. I'll have I'll I'll, I'll be there for you, and I'll have people ready for you." So I I got to the ER, and by the time I got to the ER, I could I was really like almost couldn't breathe at all, and uh, I had developed pulmonary embolisms. I developed um, uh, deep vein thrombosis as a result of the shir- surgery. Traveled from my leg into my into my lungs, and my lungs filled up with blood, and I nearly drowned in my own blood. Um, so that was the beginning. And that's not, I'm not saying that that's a byproduct of the medication that I was on, but I think that was a byproduct of just general ill health and not taking care of myself. Sure. In addition to already dealing with severe inflammation. So that was that was really scary. I mean, I was in the hospital for quite a while, and um, it can kill, kill you, kill you. It was I was yeah. like 15 minutes away from sure. not being around, um, and then you know over the next few years, 
I just got more and more sick and gained more weight and um, became, you know, I got to the point where every night I had to sleep with a towel by the bed because I'd wake up at three in the morning and the bed would be soaked. And I'd have to put the, the towel down, get on top of that. And then I'd wake up in the morning at 8.30, 9 in the morning, and it would take me a good half an hour just to get out of bed and then to shuffle to my chair and then to shuffle from my chair to the shower. I could barely button my my shirt. I couldn't tie my laces in the morning. My hands and feet would be so swollen and so stiff, and my body would just be so achy and stiff from from being immobile through the night that the mornings were just really horrible. In fact, so much so that I dreaded going to bed because I knew how bad I was going to feel in the morning. So I would stay up super late. And the only thing that would give me like a modicum of pleasure would be to, you know, drink a bottle of wine and eat a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. (laughs) Got to support the Vermont economy, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, I knew I wasn't doing the right thing for for myself, but if I had like a kale smoothie and took um, turmeric in the morning, I didn't feel any better either. So what was the point? I might as well get some pleasure and, and, and enjoy something. Um, and that kind of progression just got worse and worse and worse. And eventually, um, and then I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, and Sjogren's syndrome and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and put on different drugs for each diagnosis. And I had a grand mal seizure, um, which, which I'd never had a seizure before, but it was caused by the medication that I was on. I was in Thailand. Um, and, it happened the second day I was in Thailand. She's not the, you don't want to have that anywhere, but especially no. not in a, like a, a foreign no. country. <laughs> no, although the irony is, is that Thailand is such an incredible private medical um, uh, system that I was in a private hospital and really well taken care of. And it was actually the neurologist there who took a look at the medications I was taking. And he said, this is why you had a seizure. You can't take these medications together. Oh, wow. Um, the worst part about this is that I'm sure I'm not the first person to spend 10 days in Thailand and not remember anything, but uh, <laughs> for very different reasons than most people. Um, so unfortunately, I went to Thailand, and I really don't remember anything from the from the trip. Very little. I mean, I remember very little. Um, and when I came back, shortly after coming back, so now I'm like, it's really clear my health is... How, the, how old how, are you at this point? Uh, 35, Wow, maybe? so 30, young. Uh, 35, yeah. 36, I think. Um I came back, and uh, and shortly after that, um, I developed a. I was sh- I was shooting some uh, TV segment, and by the end of the shoot, I had a, the worst headache I've ever had in my life. So bad that I, I could barely get off the couch, um, and I knew that there was something severely wrong. And I, I went to the ER, and by the time I got to the ER, I had a fever of 104, and then I went up to 106. I didn't even know you could go that way. Neither did I. Um, and, uh, so I was in the ER and, and no idea what had caused this obviously. And they tried everything. They tested me for everything. Um, they could see that I had my, my spinal fluid. I had two spinal taps. They were, it was like, you know, obviously full of white blood cells. Um, and I was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis, but they had no idea how I, how I could have gotten that. Um, and I was put on broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, I had, uh, IV antibiotics, um, and I was, they kind of kept an eye on me. And eventually after like a week or so, I was strong enough to be able to get out of the hospital. We never figured out what caused it. And then a few months later it happened again. Only this time it happened in my throat. My throat oh. closed up again, super high fever, not quite as high, but you know, almost 105, 
back in the hospital. We went through the same process, IV antibiotics, you know, every antibiotic they could, you know, the broad spectrum they could give me to try to wipe out whatever it might be. And that's when I realized something has to change in my life. I can't do this anymore. I'm, you know, 50 pounds overweight. Uh, I am on injections, multiple pills a day. Um, I'm just barely getting by, and I feel like shit all the time. And if I don't keep doing, if I don't change, I'm going to die. There's just no way out. Um, and that's when I met Frank. Frank Lippman. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you and I have Frank in common. Yeah. Um, he introduced us. Yeah. And uh, Frank is, you know, in addition to being a great doctor, he's just a wonderful human being. Um, and one of the things that he really helped me do was to kind of get outside of myself and to change my my perspective on what it meant to be um, a patient in many ways. Um, and he never said, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to cure you, I'm going to treat you, anything like that. He said, we're going to work together and you're going to get better. Um, and that was, you know, hugely um, important to me because I, I suddenly had somebody who was in this with me and was providing me with a sense of hope and optimism, um, but who was also a realist and who also was incredibly compassionate. You know, he kept saying, it's really a shame that you've had to experience and suffer as much as you've, you've suffered because it's, it was avoidable. And when he told me that my suffering was avoidable and now, I mean, I know now in hindsight that it was, and I understand that, um, that's part of what you know to me is is so important about trying to, to to about talking about this stuff and to and to and to to share this with other people because there are so many people that are suffering unnecessarily, or who could be setting themselves up unknowingly for a life of suffering if they don't make some changes in the way they're living their lives. Um, and Frank just he he basically said, "Listen, you're going to have to do all the work. I'll help you. I'll help you come up with a program." And I'm going to do what I can, but ultimately, the success or failure of this process hinges entirely upon you, which was very different from the mentality that I'd had before of that transactional health, that idea of going to the doctor, getting a diagnosis, taking the pill that was given to me, and then going about my daily life and not really thinking about the thousands of decisions I make throughout the day that could impact my health, rather thinking, oh, that doesn't matter. I've done my part. I've taken the pill. I've gone to the doctor. I've done the tests. Sure. Uh, but with Frank, it was much more like, you know, okay, how much water have you drunk? How much did you sleep? Uh, have you, are you taking all your supplements? Have you taken these supplements? What are you eating? What, how do you feel? Did you do the cleanse? Did you, are you taking this? Are you taking that? Are you, you know, everything together, understanding that there's a, that it, it's uh, 360 degrees of health, 365 days a year. And that's the only way that you can, um, you know, that you can really set yourself up for success. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, you can't eat the occasional cupcake or you can't meet friends for a glass of wine. But it means that for me, for instance, when I was in a time of crisis, that that shit wasn't going to happen. Sure. You know, I had to get my health on track before I was going to start to do any of that. Um, and so he, you know, he, he really, he opened a door for me. And the minute that I started to feel better, which was six months to which the day. a while. Takes, a, yeah, it's a while. Six months. A lot of people expect to feel better like in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I call it APS, Amazon Prime Syndrome. You want what you want. You want it now. You want to feel it. You want to be 40 pounds lighter tomorrow. Yeah. But I, you know, the reason that I stuck with, I mean, there were, there were some times in that six month period where I was like, shit, is this worth it? I'm not getting any better. I don't really feel any better. 
And Frank was really optimistic. He kept saying, just listen, trust me, stick with this. You are going to get better. It's going to take time. You're, you're a pretty, I mean, and you can ask Frank. I mean, I was a severe case. I was really sick. Um, but I also, because I trusted him, I became in many ways a model patient. I was very, very compliant. I followed, you know, the programs we put together to a T. And when I, and, and he gave me that sense of hope because he, he said it's going to take a while. I mean, he even told me early on, I think it's going to take like six months before you start to feel better. <laughs> and it was literally six months the day. Well, that it's I, like you're undoing yeah, years. Yeah, you're undoing years. Yeah, you can't expect, I mean, you know, we don't, and I use weight gain as an, as an example, not because that's, that's something that we should get totally hung up on, but I think it's really, it's important to know that, um, you know, if you, if you are 20 pounds overweight, it, it, took a, it took a considerable amount of time to get to become 20 pounds overweight. So the realistic approach is that it's going to take a considerable amount of time and discipline to get back to the healthy weight. And, and you need to be, you know, you have to be pretty committed to it. Um, so I, I was committed to getting healthy because it took me a long time to get sick. It was a slow, and I, what I didn't realize, and I know now, is that I started getting sick when I was like five years old or wow. four years old or three years old. And Do you Frank, remember back then? Yeah, some of it. But it's not just, it's not just, I'll tell you what I mean. And this is one of the things that Frank asked me to do early on. He said, I want you to write down your medical history, your entire medical history, going back as far as you can remember. So I started writing down, like, well, I remember, you know, getting a lot of sore throats when I was a kid, and get, I got strep throat a lot, which now I know I'm like, oh, I got strep throat a lot. And I was actually prescribed antibiotics a ton when I was, a, when I was younger. Um, and then I got salmonella when I was 14, and I... I had dengue and I was bitten by bats and blah 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 blah. Bitten and by all, bats, yes, yeah, sweet. I what? know. Uh, no, I was I was bitten by bats in Venezuela and I went through the rabies treatment, um, which is horrific. They give you injections in your stomach, and you know there. I, I had been treated for a number of different things from throughout my whole childhood. But in addition to that, I also grew up in a household where we thought we were very conscientious about health. You know, we did all of the current thinking at the time of what was constituted healthy food, which was a lot of carbohydrates and, you know, a lot of grains. Um, and I remember throughout my entire childhood, after every meal, being completely bloated and feeling sick to my stomach. Well, almost every meal had, had tons of gluten in it and had tons of grains. Um, and a lot of carbohydrates because that was, you know, my dad baked bread and um, we had what we thought was healthy whole grain bread and we ate a lot of pasta and pasta with veggies and we ate a lot of corn. And these are all things that I know now are serious inflammatory triggers. Um, so over time, it's not like if I eat an ear of corn, I'm going to have, you know, uh, an, an inflammatory response, an acute inflammatory response. But as I said before, that whole idea of death by a thousand cuts, all of those little things were starting to erode my gut. They were starting to, they were creating greater and greater perforations in my gut wall. And that in conjunction with a lot of antibiotics and other, God knows what other, you know, meds that I'd taken over the years. Um, and then an unhealthy diet created a, a landscape of ill health in my gut. And um, that is what I believe, it's not one thing, but that's a direct result of many different things. That is what I believe 
threw my immune system off offline. Sure. So you start to feel better, take six months, and then how much time has passed since then? It's been about six years. Six years. Yeah. So like walk me through your evolution. So you have this awakening, you start yeah. to feel better, and then you yeah. know, at some point you get to like, oh my God, like, do you remember that, that moment when you're mm -hmm. like, holy shit, like, I haven't felt this way. Yeah. I have that every day, actually. But <laughs> but the first time that I had that was was um, when I, you know, six months after I started working with Frank, I, I was walking down the spiral staircase in in, um, in my apartment, and I realized halfway down the stairs that I was walking like a normal person. And that was the first time in, like, maybe 11 years that I, wow. had, like, wasn't walking down the stairs one step at a time. And I, in that moment of, like, holy shit, I'm walking like a normal human being, the next holy shit moment was, oh, my God, my hands aren't swollen. Oh my God, my feet don't feel like they were hit with hammers. You know, that, that was my, my normal baseline was it felt like somebody like the morning was like, good morning, Seamus. How are you? Here's the hammer. Smash your foot. <laughs> oh, let me, let me get the other foot too. Smash the foot. Oh, your hands aren't swollen. Let me pump them up until they're totally swollen. Okay, great. Now you're ready to start the day. That was kind of what my day was like all the time for years. Like I just felt crummy all the time. My vision was blurry. I had headaches. I mean, I just felt lethargic and sore and achy. And then that was like the baseline. And then the really bad stuff was, oh, here's an here's a an infection that's going to nearly kill you, yeah. and here's a here's you know your your inflammation in your joint that's going to send you to the hospital. So that moment where I suddenly realized I wasn't in pain was pretty amazing because I was so used to a baseline of being in pain that so I wasn't in pain. That was phenomenal. It's an incredible thing. So I walked a little bit further down the stairs. I got to the bottom of the stairs and decided that I was going to ride my bicycle because I hadn't done that. And that when I was younger, my bike was always my, my escape, my happy place. Um, so I got on my bike and I rode a little bit and I only rode like six miles, but it was, you know, it was enough to put the shitty, shitty grin on my face and to get me really happy. And then I did it the next day. And I mean, with, 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 without any, you can imagine, so that was, I had, I took that step forward, got on my bike. And since that day, I've gotten nothing but better ever since. Nothing but healthier, nothing but more fit. I haven't gone backwards. Um, and that's where there's a couple of things that, that, that I've taken away from that. Two, one, one is that, that you know we talk about illness as being something that is contagious. And I really truly believe that health is even more contagious than illness. Mm. Not only contagious in the sense that we have the ability to affect the people around us with, with um, the desire to be healthy, but also on an individual level, once I got a taste for feeling good, I just wanted to feel more good. Right. So that was, the, that was where it was like, okay, this is actually working. Now I'm really going to throw myself into the work. Um, so that was, that was one aspect of it, and that was really just phenomenal. But the other part of it is just that the, the stronger I got, the stronger I wanted to be. Um, the more I wanted to move the needle and the more committed I got to never ever returning to being ill again. And it was tremendously empowering because I realized, you know what, I got to this place. I didn't get there on my own, but I got there of my own doing with support. Um, and it wasn't a pill that gave me, it wasn't like I won the lottery. Right. You know, there's a reason that so many people who, who win the lottery end up committing suicide. I earned that. I earned that health. And I'm not saying like if I had gotten a pill that cured it, I would have committed suicide, but there was something sweet about earning sure. it. There was something sweet about knowing, okay, I can do this. 
Um, and that was hugely empowering because it changed my perspective. I didn't think I was, you know, this victim or I didn't think I was a, a leaf kind of floating down a stream, but rather I was like, I was in a stream and I was in a kayak and there's some things that I could control and some things that I couldn't, but I generally knew the direction I was going and I could exercise a fair amount of power over that. So I want to talk about, to segue to your, your book, which everyone has to pick up, Real Food Heals. Amazing book, guys. Got to read it. Recipes from a real chef. That's right. Uh, and so I want to talk about the, the relationship that food has mm-hmm. in this experience. So you're starting to feel better. You're, you're also a chef. Mm-hmm. Like, what what's happening? Like, what foods are making you feel good? Like, how is your, I don't want to say, as you said, I don't want to use the word diet because it yeah. has the word diet, diet in it. Exactly. But, like, how, how did your diet change how has it evolved and that you're starting to feel better like what foods are making you feel better what foods mm-hmm. are you starting to avoid and how has this shaped talk to us about that first. yeah so i mean the the broad strokes are probably not going to be uh anything too revolutionary for most of the folks that are listening to this if you're concerned with health and food and health you probably know that sugar is not good for you and that's you know that's a pretty that's a pretty big step just acknowledging that and then coming to terms with sugar and realizing where sugar exists and it exists in so many different places. So for me, early on, I mean, and now this this carries out through carries over through how I live now. But I, I keep my sugar intake really, really low. Um, doesn't meaning, matter if it's a it's from a doesn't a matter. Bee in an ashram. No, David. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, exactly. David yeah. Perlmutter says, says yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter if it's from a, bee, from a bee in an ashram. That's right. Yeah, sugar is sugar. Glucose, fructose, dextrose. Enios. Enios is bad. They're all sugars. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't recognize that sugar is delicious. And sugar does make a lot of things taste really good. Um, So that said, I mean, I try to be super conscientious of my sugar consumption. Um, But if there's, you know, if there's really, really good chocolate or I feel, if I feel like it, if I feel like, you know what, I want a treat, I want to have some really good ice cream, then I have it and I don't beat myself up over having it. But on a day-to-day basis, there are plenty of places where sugar exists unnecessarily. Sure. And and that's, you know, for the most part, it's in a lot of packaged fo- foods. Um, and it's also in a lot of very carb-laden foods. So carbs and sugar, I mean, carbs are really something that's, that that um, I had to break up with. Uh, <laughs> and in the breakup, you know, I feel pretty good about the breakup now. But it took a while for my metabolism to to get over it. What was most heartbreaking about that big? Was it like tortilla chip? Like, did you have? Uh... Well, I mean, initially it was bread. Sure. You know, it was like really good sourdough bread and sandwiches. And who doesn't love a grilled cheese sandwich? Well, especially it's like you know you you're a chef, and there's like that I that that and actually the film Chef, like mm-hmm. one of the best you've seen the film. Yeah. Like one of the best scenes in the film, he's making the grilled cheese. Yeah. this It's like every chef's like you just make this amazing grilled cheese. And oh it's yeah. Like, oh yeah, that's gone. I can't do that anymore. Yeah, the Swanee grilled cheese or the, the amazing <laughs> Cuban sandwich. That's just yeah, all those things and and. Yeah, you, that was hard. Giving up bread was, was hard for me. Um, and uh, I think fresh, you know, fresh pasta was also hard for me. And the funny thing is, though, that I, and I never, I wasn't the kind of person that took those things out and then tried to find suitable substitutes. Like you didn't rather, run for the gluten-free bread? No, I was much more like, well, you know, I'm not going to have that, so I'm just going to have something else that's really, really good. You know, I'm, I'm much more of the... I'll have the zucchini noodles rather than the gluten-free pasta type sure. of thing, which is, okay, it satisfies the textural or creates a vehicle for the sauce or whatever, but it's really a completely different animal. It's not 
I'm not just making some sort of other carb substitute for it. So I, I think, yeah, breads were hard to break up with. But again, also a lot of that, and I've learned this as I've learned more and more about m- metabolism and specifically my own metabolism, that when I was able to overcome my addiction to carbs and tortilla chips were right up there too, um, that my body didn't crave them nearly as much and I didn't feel the need for them nearly as much. Right. And I started to create crave other foods much more. Um, and now, I mean, the foods that I crave now are like, you know, I cra- crave healthy fats and I crave um, good meat and good fish and good vegetables. And um, I tend to, I mean, I eat like really, really, I eat every day I've just had a, yeah, the, the, the big ass salad. What's a day in the life of, of um, you today? Like, for example. Today. Yeah, like what do you have for breakfast, lunch, and then. Okay. Um, I had coffee with coconut milk this morning. Um, and that was, I mean, I, well, I didn't get up super early, so I got up at seven. Um, you don't do the butter and the coffee. I do sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I do sometimes. Um, and then I didn't eat anything again until one thirty, maybe two o'clock. Um, and then I had the big ass salad and the salad today was mustard greens, um, carrots, uh, charred broccoli, um, lettuce of some sort, avocado, egg, mocha which is a white pickled anchovies, lots of herbs, and I think that was it. But I'm it was coming over for lunch tomorrow. It was huge. Yeah, come over for lunch. <laughs> I'll cook for you anytime. So it was like a huge salad, and um, there was a little bit of, of protein in there from, I mean, a little animal protein from the from the anchovies. Um, there was animal protein from the and fat from the the egg. And then avocado and a lot of vegetables. I mean, there's a ton of other vegetables in there, too. And that's kind of like a typical lunch for me. And I'll eat that usually at 1 or 2 in the afternoon. And so I don't tend to eat in the morning at all unless if I have, like, a really, really hard bike ride or if I'm doing, like, a really long bike bike ride, um, I'll, I'll have in the morning I might have, like, a very fatty breakfast. So eggs, avocado, bacon, sweet potato. And sweet potato will be, like, the, the carb in that. Sure. Um, but you know that's kind of typically what I do for for lunch, of something of that variety, and then dinner I'll have vegetables and protein. So in the, and that can be in any, and sometimes there's no protein. Sometimes there's vegetables, but usually it's vegetables sure. and protein, um, and fat in some capacity. So you're starting to feel better, and you're you're cooking in a different way. Like, what are your other friends who are chefs saying? Um, well, you know. Are they secretly, you know, admiring what you're doing or whispering like, hey, I don't feel good either? Or? Yeah. You know, it's funny. So I, we go to, we have lots of different events, culinary yeah, sure. events. Yeah. And um, over the years, you know, I, I, I'm amazed every time I go to, to whether it's a, um, you know. Like Aspen Food and Wine or uh, South yeah, Beach exactly. or something, any, one of these big events. Any of these events, I'm always bumping into people that I, that I, friends of mine from the industry that I don't see on a day-to-day basis. And it's one of the things of, about change is that you really notice change with gaps of time. So when you see somebody that you haven't seen in six months or in a year, it, any change, positive or negative, is very noticeable. Yeah. Um, versus if you see someone every day, you don't really notice it. Uh, and without without you know fail every time i go to one of these events people come up to me like oh my god you look great you've lost so much weight you look healthy you look vibrant you look... and i feel great too and it's really nice that other people notice it i've also noticed that 
a lot of my my colleagues, some of my colleagues don't look great. I mean, right. like really look pretty pretty rough around the edges and have aged a lot. And then a lot of my 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 friends and colleagues have changed as well, um, and have made for whatever reason whatever they might be struggling with, whether it's a, uh, an, an issue like mine, autoimmune disease, or or alcoholism, or abuse, or just general kind of um, you know unhealthy lifestyle, have made changes. And I've seen this kind of sea change in our industry, which makes me really happy. You know, I see a lot of people in our industry who have gotten who have replaced kind of going to the bar at night with getting up and going to the gym in the morning. Right. Um, and there's definitely been a movement towards that. And I think it's not, I mean, the reality is that it's, there, there is no longevity in just doing the same thing over and over again. And in the, in the industry that we work in, it's too hard to work the hours and abuse your body over and over again without eventually something breaking down. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's that's it's been it's been really nice to see that, and I I hope that we continue to see more of that. I hope that um, you know as chefs we do. I think we have a responsibility to put healthy food on the table because, and we have a responsibility to put healthy, delicious food. I mean, always I'm always about leading with delicious. If you just if you say it's healthy, then we're kind of eating it because we feel as though we should eat it. Sure. But if it's delicious and then you just make it with good stuff and it just happens to be good for you. Uh, it's a, it's, you're, you're, you're on the right track. And so what other chefs and restaurants, whether it's in New York or around the world, do you think are really doing interesting stuff, like making healthy, delicious, doing like bringing it, bringing, bringing it to, to people in an interesting way? Like who inspires you there? Uh, lots of people do. I mean, you know, here in New York, Marco Canora has been doing a great, great sure. job. Marco's a great guy. And he's one of the, he started Brodo and is the kind of the, the first and most outspoken voice in, in the States about this whole idea of bone broth um, and the healing power of bone broth and doing something that, you know, as chefs, we've we've known for years and years and years that soup is the original penicillin, it's the original medicine. Um, and and doing it in a way, and I, what I like about what Margo's approach is that he's not, you know, and there, there are some things that he and I, I mean, that we may not necessarily agree with entirely or 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 he, there's some things that, that he makes that I wouldn't, that I don't necessarily personally eat, but it doesn't mean that I don't think they're, they aren't great and delicious, but I like his approach because it's really about real food. Yeah. Um, it's about, it's not about fake food. It's not about supplement, supplemental food or replacing food or food, food replacements. It's about like real honest cooking. I, and I don't, you know, I don't think that for, to, to eat for health, to eat for real health, you have to totally eschew modernism and give up, um, you know, you don't have to go back and you have to go back, you know, 10,000 years to eat healthy. Sure. The most important thing is that we just cook. That's the most important thing that we actually cook. The art of cooking has kind of disappeared. So the first step is just to get people to cook and to sit down at a table together. And ultimately the quality of those ingredients, yes, eventually that's important. And what we're serving is important, but the most important thing and step is just to get people to actually eat real food that's made from scratch because the so much of what we consume on a daily basis is packaged food that come from packages right you know that we don't really you know they're, they're the cheapest and most accessible calories and they're they're the most nutrient deficient calories 99 percent of the time so just getting people to cook sure. um so i mean that's you know a shout out to Marco. He's yep. he's a he's a great chef. Um, uh, our friend Akhtar Nawab does great stuff and has been. He just opened a, a Mexican place called Alta Calidad, which is really good. Can you say that again? Alta Calidad. Alta Calidad. Where's that place? Uh, it's on Vanderbilt. Um, 
In Brooklyn? In Brooklyn, yeah. Okay, I gotta go. You haven't been? No. Dude, we gotta go. I'll go with you. Yeah, let's go. I like going to... Advice out there, whenever you go to dinner with friends who are chefs, whole different experience. And let them order. Always <laughs> and let them order. And the well, that's are, a rule. Come on. Yeah, you I mean, can't the, go to dinner with a chef and just order off the <laughs> No, and the reality is like every time I go out to dinner, it, I always ask, do you guys, should I just order? And before I even get an answer, I'm like grabbing the menus well, and like, I, I'll just order. That's fine. The first one time we were in Chicago for a Chipotle event mm-hmm. and where I met Amanda Freitag mm-hmm. and we all went to dinner with Amanda in Chicago and it's like, oh my God, like. I'm not even going to order anything. Yeah. What's the point? <laughs> What's the point? Yeah. Because as chefs, we're going to order everything anyway. And we're going to make sure that we order enough. Because if it's, you're not a chef, no, if somebody else, you know, a, a civilian orders, they're not going to order enough food for the well, Like there's this unwritten rule where chefs take care of chefs too. Yes, and the whole, like, course. it's just, it's there's kind a, of cool. Yeah. There's a level of hospitality within a restaurant if you're a chef. I mean, when chefs come into our restaurants, we always... You always take care of them. And it's funny, though, that brings up an interesting point because... um, That's a problem, too. It's a problem, yes. (laughs) And it's a problem because um, it used to always be that, you know, I would try to go into a restaurant under the radar and somebody would recognize me and they would just kill you with food. Right. They'd send so much food and you'd feel obligated to eat it. And a lot of times, you know, for me, I'm very conscientious about how I eat and I have a very specific way of eating. Um... And I don't want to be an asshole if somebody's selling, sending me, you know, flatbreads and, and, and extra desserts, but I don't eat desserts and I don't eat flatbreads. And it creates a very awkward situation. So I generally, if somebody recognizes me, I usually say, hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. If you're thinking of sending anything, it's fine. You Please don't. I'm totally happy to order. And I don't expect any handouts and I don't expect anything, you know, right. freebies. But there was definitely a time when... The the mo in the restaurant was oh a chef comes in we're gonna kill him with food it was like yeah a very and they bring out the yeah. wine and the booze and, it, and and it's yeah yeah it can be a little bit too much and so what, any other places you think are really interesting uh, any other places that are really interesting that oh you know I had a really good meal the other day I don't know the chef and I don't know anything um, about the restaurant but I've been going a couple times with, like it's called Chinese Tuxedo oh yeah um, in Chinatown. Uh, I love sushi. I love Japanese food. I mean, there, there's so many great places to eat. And what I love about um, the world that we're in right now is that there are more and more people that are becoming conscientious about the effect that food has on our on, on our health, that it becomes easier and easier and easier to eat in a way that I eat, for instance. I mean, I, 99% of the time, if I'm going to a good, a decent restaurant, um, I can I can pick and choose my way through the menu and find, you know, great options. Sure. I can always find, no, does it mean that I, there's 100% of the menu stuff that I, I necessarily feel comfortable eating? No, but I can usually find stuff that, that, um, that suits me. Getting outside of the metropolitan area is a little bit different when you're looking sure. at a diner in upstate New York. But yeah. Ever tell you the story, Colleen, my wife, what, what, was in Arkansas one time, and uh, <laughs> she was with a group of people, uh-huh. and, and, she, and they said, uh, we, and she was a vegetarian at the time, she's not anymore, they said, we know you're a vegetarian, so we, we got you the turkey sandwich. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's great, yeah. Turkey, turkey is one of my favorite vegetables. <laughs> that's incredible. So what do you think the future of food is, restaurants? Like, what's exciting? Where do you think things are going? Um, you know, well, what, is the, what is the future? Some of it is exciting. Some of it's a little saddening. Um, the, the saddening part is that uh, restaurants are notoriously difficult to operate. Sure. Um, the margins are really, really small, and there are a lot of moving parts, and they're really hard as a business to run, which means that the, the high-end full-service restaurants – 
where service is really an important aspect of the experience, um, are, are becoming prohibitively e expensive, sure. particularly in places like New York. Or Danny Myers wrote a lot about that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so that's sad. I mean, like I, you know, I hope that New York, which is one of the great dining cities in the world, doesn't go the route of just having restaurants and hotels and then fast casual restaurants. Mm. But, but that is a possibility. Um, the mom and pop's restaurants may get pushed out by the, the banks and the pharmacies. Um, it's like how many Chase banks and I Wells know. it's like everything turns into a bank yeah, or, a it's, or a pharmacy or a pharmacy and it's all, and really it, for the banks it's it's just about building their brand I mean it's right. more grant, brand visibility they don't need to have a Chase bank on every two blocks um, or people you know oh god forbid you have to walk two more blocks to get to go to the bank well especially like <laughs> to get what cash like yeah. we're also going cashless we're going like cashless, Sweet Green doesn't take cash exactly um, so but what 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 are the what, are, what am I excited about the future of, of restaurants and food? There, there's a lot. I mean, I think the the thing that I'm most excited about, as I mentioned before, touched on, is that there is a sea change happening, and you know, Mind Body Green is a part of it. I'm very honored to be a part of it. There's a there's a a movement of a greater understanding of the impact that food has on our health, and in being more aware of that, and also of kind of of shifting and questioning what has been the the dominant paradigm of health and the notion of what constitutes uh, nourishing food. We're understanding that that's not, you know, we've been kind of force-fed a lot of misinformation for a really long time. And you can play devil's, devil's advocate and say, well, um, well, you know, now the American Heart Association says that coconut oil is not good for you. <laughs> uh, what do you think of that? You know, I know um, you disagree. Of course I disagree. <laughs> but the part, part of it is that even if there aren't double-line placebo tests out there to to demonstrate the direct correlation between foods that we eat and let's say our microbiome and our and our immune system i'm not i know because i lived it right. and i know because i live it every day and i know when i eat well and i eat within the four walls of what i know to be healthy food that i feel great and when i don't and when i move outside those four walls for any one reason I start to feel not so great. Uh, and I also know what it means to feel really fucking not so great. <laughs> and I'm not willing to wait for science to catch up and prove or for, for the medical industry to prove what I know to be true in my own body. Right. Um, and I'm glad to see that now there is, I mean, I have lots of doctors that come and ask me about food and the impact food has on health. And that to me is both inspiring and scary. Um, <laughs> it's inspiring because I'm glad that the medical community is taking an interest and in that there are programs like the program at Tulane that actually has doctors going into culinary programs and learning how to cook. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm inspired because, you know, guys like Frank Lipman and Seamus Mullen are, gonna, are talking at places like Johns Hopkins. I'm inspired by those sorts really? of... What are you yeah, talking about? We're going we're gonna to talk about what we talk about, food and <laughs> You health. guys have your stick. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about the truth. You know, yeah. we're going to talk about, about how food relates to health and, and how powerful a tool food can be for, for, for good health. Um, and, and I think part of it is also to get away from that. Um, we have, we've avoided a word in this conversation, uh, which is, I think is, I'm glad we've avoided, but it's superfood. 
Oh, and so I hate, that was my next question. Oh, no. What yeah. are your favorite superfoods, exactly. James? So I, and, and I hate that. I hate superfoods because, and I hate, I hate the notion of superfoods, and I hate the idea of like, okay, well, what supplements do I need to take? Because You're if, getting all the rest of my questions. Oh, okay, good. Because <laughs> the, the what superfoods super I need to eat and what supplements do I need to take, it's just like saying, okay, well, I'm not going to take this blah, 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 blah. I take Frank's whey protein, by the way. Oh, okay. Plug. <laughs> I do. It's a yeah, great whey protein. And we're talking about living. Yeah. It's, it's great. It is a great whey pro- protein. Um, but the, the, the point about the superfoods is that if you think, if when, when we're, we're caught on this idea of let's just replace the pill for the prescribed food, right. for the prescribed supplement, there isn't, it isn't about that. I mean, yes, there are supplements. I take supplements. And yes, there are foods that have that are known to be powerful natural anti-inflammatories. But does that mean that I'm just conscientious about making sure I'm cramming turmeric down my throat? <laughs> I'm not. But it is something that I love to incorporate in, at times into my cooking. Well, well, let me rephrase that. What are the things you like to incorporate? Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, listen. When I think of I, I think of feeding myself. And feeding the the trillions of, of bacteria that 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 hang out with me. So what does that mean? It means that feeding myself, I, I want to make sure that I'm eating stuff that's first and foremost really really enjoyable and pleasurable. Mother Nature gave us two major necessities for survival: chowing down and humping. Right? That's pretty much what we need to do to survive. And fortunately, both of those things, if you do them well, are really pleasurable and enjoyable. So if you take the pleasure out of either of those things, they're not very good. Um, so for me, food, food's got to be really delicious. It has to be about, about um, either an experience with that ingredient for yourself or an experience around the table and a social experience. Uh, and um, I'm not going to talk about humping. You can do that in another podcast. Um, but... So one of the things that I love to eat, I love to eat for my own pleasure. I also love to eat things that, and I, I always am conscientious about eating things that are good for, you know, for my gut, good for everything else. And that means eating foods that are, you know, particularly vegetables that are very fibrous, um, you know, making sure I'm eating artichokes and asparagus and Brussels sprouts and the brassicas and all of those things mm-hmm. um, that are really nutrient dense and that are good for the bugs downstairs. Um, and then eating some things that are also probiotic, so making sure that periodically I'm getting some living foods in, into what I'm eating to diversify my bacteria, if you will. And then, uh, and then healthy fats, you know, right. lots of healthy fats. So last question. Yeah. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice oh, in your 20s, God. Yes. what would that be? Oh, I think about this all the time. <laughs> if the, if the 43-year-old Seamus could sit down and have a conversation with the 23-year-old Seamus. Um, what would that be? Man, I think this is, this is sort of like a, a silly one, but I, w- I, would, I would tell him, do yoga. I love it. Do yoga for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think that as I said before, like one good decision begets a lot of other good decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when, when you think about, for instance, trying to lose weight, exercise is a shitty way to lose weight, but exercise is good for a lot of other things. And exercise is really good at promoting other good decisions. Sure. Um, yoga has a lot of benefits. Um, 
slowing the body down, slowing the mind down, I think which is really important. Focusing on the breath. We were talking before this about the the, the fascinating world of, of breathing. Oh yeah, huge, huge stuff um, going on there. Yeah. So I think I think yoga is a great, obviously is a, is a great practice for doing that. But from a, just a completely physical and 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 mechanical standpoint, I think if I had done yoga, I would have a stronger back. I wouldn't have had back surgery. Um, I would have obviously have greater mobility now, and I think it would have helped me be better at everything else that I did. Sure. Um, and working in a kitchen is really really challenging. You tend to follow the same repeated patterns over and over again, physical patterns. You know, squat down, pick up the, the stock pot, bend over, pick up the, the box of vegetables, stand in front of the stove and cook at the same six dishes doing the same six movements over and over again. And you get caught in these patterns that um, are, you know, they, they can really set you up for some physical problems. And yoga is about exploring new patterns sure. and a variety of patterns of physical movement. So I, I, would, I would tell a 23-year-old Seamus to do yoga. It's so funny. I ask that question to everyone who comes on, and, and I would probably say the same thing. Yoga did save me from back surgery, like a lot of people know, yeah. but I would probably yeah. say the same thing. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. Everyone who's listening, you've you got to pick up his book, Real Food Heals, How Changing the Way I Eat Saved My Life. He's got amazing information on food here, his personal story, and then amazing, delicious recipes from a real chef. He, just, right. he doesn't play a chef on Instagram, guy. He's a real chef. That's right. A real chef. And check out his restaurant, Tertulia, too. Awesome. Thank Thanks. you so much, guys. Thanks, Jason. Thanks.